Ben. Hello. What's up, everyone? This is uh, the Kings of Punk podcast that you're listening to. Hello. This is a little bit of an intro. Um, we have a couple things coming up on this episode. Yeah. I What I have is I have the hiccups now, but that's okay. We're rolling. You know, I had a cough for weeks. That's gone now. At the moment, I have the hiccups. Uh, yeah, today, today's episode, we are going to be bringing you an interview with Andrew Thorpe King, uh, uh, the boss at Thorpe Records and Sailor's Grave Re- Records. Uh, he's had a lot of other pursuits as well, which you can read about in his book, uh, Failure Rules, which is going to be the primary topic of conversation in today's episode. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're going to be interviewing Andrew. Then after that, we... Uh, just chit chat for about yeah, a little discussion a little with Tim about uh, I don't know. We talk about like rap videos from Rochester, I think. <laughs> yeah, talk about rap videos. We talk about movies a bit too. We talked about movies a lot. Yeah, and uh, should be a, it's a fun episode. Uh, definitely didn't know what to expect necessarily going in. Yeah, me me neither, and that's why I sort of wanted to do it. And I feel good about it now. I think you know by all means, let us know what you think. You love this, you hate it. Whatever you think of it, let us know. If you like it, uh, go ahead, follow Andrew on social media, too, and and uh, check out the book. If not, uh, tell us all about it, because either way, we want to know what you think. But I'm, I'm feeling excited for this one to, to, you know, hit everybody's eardrums. Yeah, and I think uh, we're going to try and maybe have guests on a little bit more frequently. Mm-hmm. And specifically guests that, you know, we reach out to. I would like to start trying to do that more. So if there's anyone you think would be a good fit or if you are are a fan you know let us know who you think we should do uh we have a couple things planned yeah there there were some people who had hit me up that i have to follow up with Uh, apologies to anybody who i have failed to follow up with about anything feel free to keep bugging me or bugging us at a cop pot official on instagram that's a good way to reach us uh in terms of generally reaching us you know there's a contact Mm -hmm. form on kingsofpunk.com as well Oh, yeah. And we'd love to hear from you. We do. We really do. So let's just get into it. This is our interview with Andrew Thorpe King. Okay, Jake Razor here from the Kings of Punk podcast. Um, I'm joined with Tyler today. Hey. As well. And we have a guest here uh mr andrew thorpe king is joining us um how you doing today andrew i'm great my man happy great. to be the, here it's like to have this combo yeah 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 thank you thank you you know we, we've gotten just recently we started getting emails now and again from people's publicists they want us to promote this or that and uh you're i think just about the only one i even responded to usually it's somebody working for a band that doesn't play punk music at all they make something that sounds like it'd be on an apple commercial i'm like okay cast a wide net go ahead but your i looked into it and your punk credentials seemed pretty fucking solid to me and you're promoting something here that was very unique and i did not expect anybody to want to come on the show to talk about so i i appreciate it um for our listeners, let's start with item one that I mentioned. Uh, could you talk a little bit about your background with the record labels and some of the bands you've worked with and uh, just your background in the punk scene generally, I suppose? Sure, absolutely. So just to start off, just to set the frame, though, here to talk about my new book, Failure Rules, The Five Rules of Failure for Entrepreneurs, Creatives, and Authentics. So there's the book right there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so- 
in the book, it talks about my journey in the music industry where I worked kind of a dual career most of my life, banking and finance, other entrepreneurial efforts, but through, in the music industry throughout. And not only did I work in the music industry for like, you know, in different capacities for over 20 years plus and still own two record labels today. Um, but uh, music has always been a soundtrack for my life. No matter what I'm doing, there's this backdrop of music that fuels me, inspires me and buoys me as I go along. So I own two record labels. Thorpe Records was the first one I started. Uh, that was like, I think probably year 2000. I started that first record was Breakdown, the classic New York hardcore band. Mm -hmm. uh, signed them. Uh, put out over 80 releases over the past couple decades on Thorpe Records, everything from Madball to Blood for Blood to Sheer Terror to Slapshot to Ramallah uh, to a, a slew of other stuff, even some verging off into more metalcore stuff. And started doing some street punk stuff and oi stuff, which I really have a love for, too. Mm -hmm. On that label, even some psychobilly stuff, did a Mad Sin record on Thorpe. And it was around 2006 that I, I really kind of wanted to kind of uh, put a bow around those subgenres that have a little bit of crossover in their niches. So I started Sailor's Grave Records with a completely different aesthetic in 2006. It was for street punk, oi, psychobilly, and anything adjacent to that. First record was U.S. Bombs, you know, Dwayne Peters, uh, pro skateboarder, his his uh, his band. So that was a, a kick-ass release to start with. Uh, but I think I released, released like six records right off the bat. It was like U.S. Bombs, The Kings of Nothing, Ducky Boys, uh, Angel City Outcasts. Uh, I don't even remember what else. Uh, and then, you know, that label has continued on too. Today, still work with a handful of active bands on Sailor's Grave Records. Uh, Goddamn Gallows, their manager was just over this week picking up stock. Um, mm -hmm. Coffee Cats, old friends of mine, Second Billy Band from Detroit. Flatfoot 56, Celtic uh, street punk band from um, uh, Southside Chicago. They actually played my well wedding, kilts and all. So that's kind of where that label uh, sits and that's that's more the active one. Thorpe really kind of stopped releasing records in 2009. It's more of a catalog label. Uh, Sailor's Great Records is really one I'm more active with. Okay, great. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I said, impressive discographies from what I've seen. There's some stuff I'm not familiar with, but I mean, I saw Blood for Blood. I saw the Out Cold Borges split that grabbed oh, my. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one for you to note. There you go. Yeah, that that grabbed my eye immediately, and and uh, yeah, Slapshot as you mentioned. Um, we will get to the book in a second. I have read it. I read it as kind of recommended in the book. I skimmed a bit, but I, I, I read it and I enjoyed it. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you kind of led me to something that I was going to ask anyway. So with regard to success as an entrepreneur and in life generally, as described in your book, you know, you said you had this constant background of music is obviously a huge part of your life. Would you, what are some things you might highlight? And this is touched on the book too, as like maybe good lessons you learned from punk rock, as well as maybe things that uh, um, at some point may have led you astray. Because it, in my experience in life, generally, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. That's actually a really great nuanced question. And, and uh, one I thought a lot about. So it's really, I think it's the duality, right? It's like the notion that, you know, you identify with this punk rock ethos, which is, primarily an attitude it's an inner spirit it's a way of showing up in the world sometimes it manifests in in, in appearance or you know uh, you know other non-conformist ways of being and so it's how do you reconcile that way of being while still participating in society while still participating in you know commerce or potentially even corporatism while retaining that ethos but not having so much friction with the world that you're unable to function and succeed in it so it's finding that right. balance between remaining authentically punk and still integrating into the world and succeeding in the world uh, with that intact. That has been a huge challenge and a huge balance 
and one that I think I've, I found a way to maybe not master, but succeed at over time. Yeah, d- definitely, definitely. And I, I think I would say some of that resonates with me as well. I think part of it was having to accept that uh, I was going to be a part of the world, whether I wanted to be or not. So maybe yeah. accept that and try to do the best I can. Um, that's getting at what what was going to be my first question about the book and really for our listeners. And then I was thinking maybe after this, we could do a little rundown of the five rules you have in it. So as as I'm sure you know, the self-help book space, or really not just books, the self-help space generally, uh, unfortunately, especially in the age of the internet, includes a lot of bullshit. It's a good opportunity for if you want to try to market to unhappy people who are easy to market to. So that's out there. And I'm sh- sure as you're also aware, like the average person who's involved in punk music uh, perceives themselves as proud owner of a very strong bullshit detector. So I, I think some of our listeners and people from subculture are going to be skeptical of the idea of reading any self-help book. So what would you say going into the book, like what would set it apart and would be like worth them suspending their skepticism and giving it a chance? And I'll, I'll tell you from the outset, I read it and I did not think I it, it was missing a lot of the things that are bullshit that I've seen in other self-help things. So I'm curious what your perspective is. Well, I didn't set out to write a self-help book and people can characterize it that way if they mm-hmm. want. I get that. I understand that. But really, this was true, like vulnerable, visceral lessons I've learned in my life that I processed through writing. And then I bolstered them by finding other case studies of virtual mentors who I respect and admire that seem to have gone mm-hmm. through similar things. So it started from a really authentic, organic place. I viewed it more as a business psychology book. But as I began to write, it became more about personal stuff too, you know, psychological stuff, emotional stuff, uh, general life, uh, you know, uh, wisdom, you know, and, and even spirituality, right? So yeah, it, it was more set off in the business psychology realm, but then branched out. But there was always this underpinning of, of punk rock, the hardcore ethos, the DIY ethos, how that attaches itself to entrepreneurialism, to, to, you know, be being living as a sovereign, authentic individual, all of those things. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think there's any bullshit in it at all. I mean, it's just real. It's really the story of my life, the things that I've learned, how I've processed certain failures and hardships and found ways to turn them into, uh, if not successes, then, uh, new things or new ways of being that ended up serving me and helping me grow. Um, and then just looking at others who have done the same, who've had similar, similar journeys where things that look, you know, moments in their life that looked like their lives were falling apart ended up really being, uh, the set of circumstances that set them up to be who they were meant to be. Yeah, that sounds, that's, that's sounds pretty close to the impression I got of the book. And I I apologize if the self-help framing wasn't preferable for you. I believe, I believe I got that from the initial email about this, that you yourself didn't write. And later I ended up being in touch with you directly. But despite that framing, I I started reading it. I was, I was like, oh, this isn't like this. This is, this is like pretty, pretty real stuff. And I I liked that in contrast to a lot of things that are marketed as self-help, you're not, um, you're not telling people like, yeah, I own five yachts and I drive a Bugatti nah. and you could be just like me. You're you're talking about stuff that I think to a lot of people would seem attainable. But for a lot of people who've tried to do it, they've decided it isn't attainable because it's it's fucking hard as you get into in the book. Um, so the book is called Failure Rules. And the way it's structured is uh, effectively you have I mean, you do have basically five rules of failure, I guess you would say, or five rules pertaining to failure. Um, yeah. So, so you break down the five rules. What are, what are the five rules for our listeners sake? 
Yeah. So just to, just to even set that up a little bit too. So like I said, mm-hmm. I started out just kind of like, you know, excavating my own uh, failure stories, if you will, and, and putting them on paper and trying to analyze how I dealt with them, what I learned from them, uh, how did I kind of, you know, turn them into um, positive experiences in my life, layered in uh, case studies from a variety of virtual mentors. I mean, everybody from podcaster, investor, James Altucher to uh, billionaire Sarah Blakely to Henry Rollins to Lemmy Kilmister to, um, you know, um, legendary boxer Jack Johnson. I mean, just a wide array of people. Um, and as I started editing it, I mean, went through multiple iterations over seven years of writing this before I even gave it to the editing team. Um, and, you know, the structure just sort of revealed itself. I started to see common threads uh, in between the stories and the chapters. Uh, that rolled up to to common themes and they kind of bunched themselves up to what were naturally five rules. And then they're under mm-hmm. each five, each rule, each chapter has kind of its own sub lesson connected to that rule that anchors the chapter and usually an- and anchors it all with, you know, an anchor quote at the top by somebody else. Um, so failure rule number one is failure purifies. Uh, so it's the idea that the Phoenix must burn to emerge that when you go through failure experiences, uh, as much as is possible, and it's very difficult to do, try to find a way to not be an emotionally participant, emotional participant in your failure. Instead, step out of that, look at it as an objective observer and find, you know, find a way to see how the chaos of your failure circumstances can be leveraged and shaped to your benefit uh, and as you envision new ways of being in the world because of your failure, right? Allowing it to shape you uh, positively instead of just kind of sitting there and being hit head on by, by the thrust of the chaos of your failure event and being demoralized by it. Uh, and so there's many examples of, of how the purification of failure is a positive refining force uh, uh, throughout the uh, chapters that support that rule in the book. Um, failure rule number two is nothing is safe. And I got that really from a, a Lemmy Kilmister quote when he was talking to Loud, uh, Loudwire. Motorhead was, uh, you know, they had a show canceled in, uh, in Manchester after the Ariana Grande uh, terrorist attacks and they're interviewing him and talking to him, you know, Hey, you know, if, if the uh, authorities and the venue would have let you play, would have you have done it? And he's like essentially paraphrasing, fuck yeah, I would have done it. Um, you know, nothing is safe. Like this idea of safety and attaching ourselves that first and foremost, above all other competing values is no way to live. Uh, and uh, you know, it was really kind of from that quote that ended up spurring 27 chapters on the topic and on the theme of, you know, subordinating safety to higher values. Not that you should never try to be safe. You don't go out and be trying to, you know, be stupidly reckless or take unnecessary risks. Uh, but this idea of safety being first is such a fallacy and I think holds people back so often from really, you know, um, living out their highest value in the world and for themselves and gives them a small life. And I think oftentimes make them psychologically, emotionally, mentally, even physically sick uh, if they're right. so clean to safety. Yeah, I will say interject real quick before we go on. I I, I think the, my takeaway from I think the first two chapters were maybe my favorite, and like that second chapter especially. It it's you boil down what you're saying. I I think tell me if I understand correctly. It's not like to disregard safety. It's just uh, you have to balance it versus all the other values and decide when it does need to be number one, and sometimes maybe it does, and other yeah. times when it doesn't. And that's even even in like context of the music scene i've thought about that before because like i like going to punk shows that are kind of dangerous but sure. in, in fact that's kind of what keeps me coming back but if that's going to compromise the ability to you know have shows at all then 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 maybe you got to compromise a little bit 
So let's, yeah, let's, let's do an overview of the rest of the rules. And then I have a couple notes here on um, maybe some particular things from the book we can get into. Yeah. If that, sure. if that works for you. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's, that's, you're spot on in terms of summarizing failure rule number two. I mean, just to go a little bit more on that. But, go, ahead, know, go for I, it. To use the example of Mike Rowe and his show Dirty Jobs, and he had an episode or talking about safety third, which wasn't to really arbitrarily place a third. It was just to say, like, enough of the safety first stuff where we have to balance against, you know, competing priorities and competing values. Uh, failure rule number three is money is spiritual, which seems like a strange rule to kind of pack right in the middle of, of the rule, the suite of rules. But really, it's the idea of, you know, viewing money as an agnostic tool that can really be a powerful spiritual kind of enabler of blessings uh, if you're able to stay away from the edge territories of envy and greed. And I view envy and greed uh, as uh, malevolent twin siblings. They're really manifestations of the same spirit. uh, And I don't think they really sustain. But if you're able to see money as this agnostic tool, it can be a powerful tool to lift yourself up out of poverty, to bless others, to be charitable, uh, to put good art out in the world, to put good products out in the world. Uh, and so it's really not something to be reviled or worshipped. It's just something to be looked at as kind of a, an agnostic tool. And so that role is all about how that idea has manifested in the lives of, of other people and how they've been able to use money for, for good, essentially. Mm-hmm. Failure rule next, number four, unless you have Yeah, that, the, the next one was, uh, no, 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 we're good. Well, I have notes. We can kind of go back. I just want people to get yeah. a kind of gen- general view of the whole thing. Sure first um because i think that's how you structure in the book do you listen to me break them down um the number four was uh, that was about the thing one and thing two dependency this one i i wasn't sure what to expect and then you described it uh, uh pretty well so maybe, maybe go over that here yeah so thing one and thing two dependency obviously the rule itself doesn't really reveal what the hell it is um mm-hmm. but it's certainly not anything to do with the cat in the hat i think of it more as like you know tony soprano waking up in his disheveled white bathrobe like his first car of the day and talking about you got the thing one enable over here the thing two uh pursuit over here so thing one is you're like enabler pursuit and or some sort of structure or scaffolding in your life that might more safely allow you to go after your thing to dream even though your right. dream is not safe because nothing is safe you still want to try to build as much logical structure as possible to enable your dream because you can't always go after your dreams or your art or whatever it might be if it's a difficult off-road pursuit you can't always go after that head on uh, you have to find a strategic way to do that and so the basic most obvious example of a thing one thing two dependency is banging down a nine to five job and side hustling your dream on the side but beyond that there's all these other creative ways to do it so i go through the example from a music example bridge nine records chris wren when he released his first six, seven, eight records, whatever it might have been, um, he instead of just you know working a job and saving up money to start his record label or taking out loans, which would be hard for him to obtain, instead he started another profitable company, Yankee Suck, and went and sold Yankee Suck merchandise, yeah. you know, Red Sox games to make that high profit to then underwrite these very risky punk rock and hardcore records, right? Uh, which some would say is throwing good money after bad. But in the tapestry of his goals, that made sense to him, you know, because it was more important to him to get those records out in the world. He was willing to waste, you know, potentially good profit to, to risk to go do that because it was higher meaning. And it's right. those type of creative uses of the thing one, thing two dependency model that I kind of explore in the book and that I challenge the reader to kind of think about in their own lives as they're trying to find a way to swerve into, you know, whatever their, their North Star high pursuit thing to calling dream is. 
Yeah, I was glad you were. I, I had heard about that before. I forgot that he got his start selling Yankees suck merchandise. Yeah. That's hilarious. And, and it's such a simple thing, but uh, clever of, of him to uh, to think of that. Because, uh, yeah, there's nothing unethical about selling. You know, I'm not a baseball fan, but I, I don't think anybody Either. would object to that too much. Um, and then uh, rule five was you are not your failures. And this had to do with mostly like self-perception, as I understand it, and uh, sort of the fear of judgment surrounding when you are in a situation where you failed and other people know it, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, quite quite succinctly, it's getting a case of the fuckets when you fail, right? It's basically right. detaching your own identity from your failure event and detaching from the optics of failure and kind of not giving a fuck what other people think about you and finding a way to realize that this is just an event, even if you induced it, even if you had some sort of derelict dereliction of due diligence that uh, produced this failure, or even if it was an ethical failure, like you can rise from that. You can detach from that. You might have to deal with consequences or messiness or or fallout or what have you, but it's not who you are. And that's how you move mm-hmm. forward. You can then become something even better, even specifically because of that failure, right? And one of the examples I talk about in the book is Elgin James, who happens to be the half-brother of Jocko Willink, who was the, um, you know, he was uh, he was the head of Violent Street Gang, FSU, uh, known alternately as Friends Stand United and Fuck Shit Up, you know, the Boston straight-edge hardcore kind of militant mm-hmm. street gang. You know, when he kind of left that life and denounced that, you know, he was able to, to not only deal with the consequences of some of his actions, you know, he was sentenced for an extortion charge uh, involving with the band Mest. And uh, on the day of his sentencing, uh, you know, uh, it was kind of the juxtaposition, juxtaposition of both of his lives, right? His, his old violent past that he had denounced and left, but still to deal with, and his new life where he was able to detach from the reputation of his old life because he is not his failures and move forward, pursue screenwriting, which is the highest use of his, his talents, uh, ended up becoming a mentee to Robert Redford, uh, actor Ed Harris wrote a, a letter to the judge. Uh, and you know, on the day of his sentencing, he got to deal with universal pictures. So it was like that juxtaposition on that one day went on to, you know, do, you know, several movies and, and be the screenwriter for, uh, Mayan's, uh, MC, uh, the spin-off yeah. working on FX. So Wait, that's kind that of what Sorry, that guy's Jocko Willink's half brother. Did I hear you correctly? Sure is. Yeah, that I did not know. Wow. Yep, Jocko. I mean, if you look at Jocko, he, uh, you know, even on a recent interview on a Modern Wisdom podcast with uh, Chris uh, Williamson, asking about his what he what he listens to. He's Oscar Front, Black Flag, Crow Mags, Bad Brains. He grew up in the, in the New England hardcore scene. I put out a record for Forced Reality, Pete Morsey's old Oi band. Remember Forced okay. Reality? Pete Morrissey sings for 100 Demons. Oh, Forced Reality. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Jocko is like a 100 Demons fan, if I remember correctly, or he used one of their Morrissey. songs for something. If you yeah. look at the Forced Reality cover art, that image of that skinhead on the cover, that's Jocko Willing. No fucking way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that at, album. That's a, the, that's a great oh, album. I, yeah. That, that's Jocko. And I didn't know it. I put out the record with that image on it, and somebody pointed out to me uh, recently, I think it was on a Bruiser's thread on Instagram or something. Yeah, it's fucking, It's an image of Jocko. So he has roots in that scene. He's integrated the aggression of hardcore punk to become who he is. You know, from from you know his military life to yeah. podcast and everything else he does. Like that's the undercurrent to his life. You know, um, uh, that 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 doesn't surprise me. That totally makes sense. I did not know the thing that he was the guy on the Forced Reality album. Uh, I haven't listened to that album in a while, but I've listened to it a lot before. And that's that. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's a yeah. really interesting connection. So. It's like unheard, unreleased under the boot, I think it's called. Yeah. 
Oh, of unreleased Force Reality stuff. Shit, I gotta check that out. That's cool. Um, yeah, I was. I, you said something just a minute ago that I liked about um, getting a case of the fuckets. I just had this. I ended up cutting it from this. There, I was doing a write up for an album that one of my friends' bands did, and I ended up cutting the part where I used that language. But I, I almost did because they've a band that's been, they've been around a while, and I heard the album, and I remember thinking. To put it in your terms, I was like, oh, this is where they finally, their calling journey has been complete. It's the most cohesive thing they've done. It's like, okay, they sound like them now. They've become themselves. Yeah. And I was thinking, I was like, okay, it's because they they never said, fuck it, let's quit. Like, And that's, I think, how you develop that understanding, especially as a band musically and get to something that's really cohesive and doesn't sound like you're just ripping somebody else. You have to right. resist, resist right. the urge to say, fuck it, and just keep going. Um now, with regards to the the calling journey in your terms, I think Tyler and I had d- discussed this off mic before. Um, could you maybe clarify what you mean by that a little more in the book? And yeah. also, I was wondering if you had any kind of like tips for intuiting that better or getting more in touch with it. I know that's a, kind of a little out of the purview of the book. I don't know, if, but I was wondering kind of maybe what you did aside from what's mentioned in the book to like make make that voice clearer to you um if you could explain a little further yeah so i have these a definition of terms in the book and some of them are mm-hmm. terms that i um borrowed from others so they're attributable to others others are ones that i i think i just made up right so i defined them so people understood what they're reading when i mentioned them in the book and calling journey is one of them and so um there, there's kind of um uh i guess calling journey and internal spirit voice are two two very connected terms in the book. Um, so calling journey is this idea uh, that, you know, we talk about calling as if like this person's called to be a doctor, or you're called to be uh, whatever it might be, uh, you know, own an ice cream shop or whatever it is. And I think there's, there, there, there's some fallacy in that idea. I don't necessarily believe that we're called necessarily to one thing, but I do believe that most of us have some sort of calling journey that is true and authentic. And we can veer away from that if we're not listening to what I call our internal spirit voice, uh, which is all of these things, the two words that I've described them the most would be mysterious and tumultuous, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you're truly listening to your internal spirit voice and you're trying to find a way to maximize your talents in the world and give your highest impact to the world, that's a very daunting task. And it's usually going to involve more difficulty, more challenge, more complexity as you go after that. And there's also going to be lots of interpretive ambiguity as you try to, uh, you know, analyze whether you're even on that path or not. But it can be, uh, it can be perceived. And so it's the idea of making sure that you really protect your alone time, uh, your quote unquote meditative time, your spiritual time, whatever, it, however you want to frame it, where you're taking time to really process life, listen to your heart, your mind, and your spirit, think about all the things that are happening in your life. And the inertia, the various inertia that are converging in your life and how you feel about it. And is it really pegged to something that is bringing uh, the most unique skills you have in your in, in you out or building those skills or uh, getting that output out of you that gives you the highest meaning and gives the highest meaning to the world? And, you know, if you don't take that time out to really hear that voice, it's hard to really do that. You'll get caught up in the inertia around you and external forces will guide you. Um, but if you do... Uh, and you struggle to do that, you can find ways to then more forcefully direct and guard your efforts 
uh, to align, uh, which is a spectrum of alignment. You're never really going to be probably fully aligned because it's imperfect, but to align mm-hmm. with that path. And I think you know it when you're on the path and you know it when you're not, because when you're not, you're going to be unsettled. You're not going to feel like you have integrity in your journey through life. You're going to feel misaligned. You're going to feel lost. You're going to feel like you missed your off ramp or missed a few off ramps. But when you are aligned, people who are aligned with that, they know it, other people see it and it's visible, you know? Um, And so that's, it's not a very clear cut kind of thing. Um, But that's generally what it is. And there's been times in my life where I've had to make radical decisions because I knew I was veering off that path. Even if I didn't know exactly what that path was, I, I knew, okay, I can't go this way, even though it might feel safe, even though it might seem to make sense to others. I have to go this way, even though it might not make sense to others and might carry more risk. And I don't know how it's going to end up, but I know that I at least have to go and do this next thing uh, and let it unfold because this is a, a big pull to it. Uh, you know, and one, one example is when I started my record label, when I started Thorpe Records, I was... Um, I was freshly, like, I was unemployed. I was laid off from a job uh, as a bill collector for Ford Credit. I was fresh, freshly married. I think my child was, my first child was was born. I was delivering pizzas and collecting unemployment. And I did something that nobody would ever advise me to do or understand or think was a good idea. And I maxed out my credit cards and started a record label, you know, yeah, yeah. And started shadowing a guy who ran a record label who I'm still friends with today. But, you know, his, his label wasn't super successful, but, you know, at least gave me the basics. Uh, and, uh, I just went after it and went down that tumultuous road. And years later, even with some of the ups and the downs and some of the, the crises that might have aligned with that, it was my path and it made sense. And over time, it helped lead me to who I am today and where I am today and lead to other things. And it was just this kind of intuitive kind of like instinct. Yeah. You know what? You know, it's interesting. I, I think if you are misaligned in the way you're describing, I, I know the feeling you're talking about and the sort of paradoxical challenge of that is when you're in that state, the idea of having alone time where you're just listening to that voice in your head is terrifying. And it's the last thing you want to do. And yep. you, you, it, that's, that's really the hard obstacle to overcome. Um, I, I think I mean, there, you people out, you got to shut, you know, everybody out even a little yeah. bit and take surplus of silence. I mean, I would go sometimes on like two, three days of just like personal retreats and shut everything and everybody out to let that voice in still do that. Yeah, do do, do you meditate or any or practice anything along those lines? Because uh, that seems like kind of what you're getting at. But I'm, I'm just curious about maybe practical things that you apply like to yeah. uh, to hear that voice more clearly. Yeah, I mean, it's not like classic meditation. It's not like bhakti yoga. It's not like, you know, Eastern meditation, anything like that necessarily. But it's meditative time. Uh, it's right. Go to the gym. Don't look at my phone. Sit in the hot tub, light a cigar, take a walk in the park like I did today. You know, anything where I'm connecting with nature, connecting with myself or doing something that is maybe physically engaging and allows my mind to be free to process what's going on. And it's really the surplus of silence that is the common factor. I mean, I read about the ancient Jewish mystic, uh, the Maharala Prague in the book and the whole notion that you have to find ways to let the spiritual lead the physical. And silence is the is, is the primary ingredient that induces the spiritual. It allows you to have that spiritual core to lead the physical. Mm-hmm. And it's a very difficult thing to balance in our modern world, but it's, it's just the things like that. Whatever works for you that actually induces silence can maintain silence for you just to allow the breathing of your spirit because, you know, things will start to come to you. 
if you allow silence into your life, I mean, just like you said, that's why people are terrified of it. That's why like they can't even drive their fucking car without having music on or having the radio on. They're constantly having external input. Um, and so that's, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to, uh, to deal with, but it's necessary. Yeah. Uh, Ty, Tyler had a comment here. So yeah, I, I just want to that uh, the you starting the record label kind of, kind of resonates with me because I recently I have a record label, um, it's called Faith in Failure. I guess it's kind of interesting. Are uh, you kidding me? No, <laughs> that's yeah, tremendous. And, uh, <laughs> and recently I put out or like last year or something like that. I my band I was like I want to get this this split. I want to I was a record. I want it on vinyl. Never had a band on one of my bands on vinyl, so I hit up a record label. And just, they're like, "Yeah, I'm interested." You know, I hate bugging people to do it, yeah. but I was like, "I gotta get out of my comfort zone." I ended up putting a lot of money on my credit cards to do it, but now labels are like putting out records for my bands without me having to pay for it. That's so awesome. it's like I don't know if I would have been able to do it if like it's like yeah, that's a bad idea, Tyler. You probably shouldn't do it, but kind of one of those things where I, I also had that desire. I was like, I need to, like, I need to do this. Yeah. It felt like That's it was right. time. Like, you yeah. know, a, a lot of the stuff in your book, it's kind of, it just reminded me of times in my life. And I've, I've said before that this is like the only time, some of the only times where I felt like, Oh, I made a good decision or I put myself on the right track instead of the wrong one. It was in times where I, I wasn't really thinking about it. Cause I felt like I didn't have a choice. It's like, um, and this connects to uh, one of my favorite parts of the book is when you talked about the Chromags. We'll get to that in a second. Like it, it's sometimes, and, and in my experience, this is maybe the value of failures or things that are humiliating. You have to really have your back against the wall and be so desperate that you can't even like make the kind of judgments that would have held you back. Otherwise, like it's, it's like, you know, I've heard fighters talk about this. I'm sure you have too. It's, it's like, you got to let, I don't, I wouldn't even say instinct. It's just like, yeah, you'll make the right choice when it's not a choice anymore. That's, that's my view, but that, that was on my mind very heavily reading your book. Yeah. Now that, I mean, it touches too on, on some Tyler said about the, the, where, where he got to before uh, where he matched out his credit cards and before he had other labels helping him out. Like there's this moment often where you're contemplating your future self and what regrets you might have if you don't act on something. Uh, even if what you're acting on is uncertain, it's unsafe, it's risky. The idea of not acting on it and the future regret of not acting on it is heavier than any of the risk or the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And that's the point where you know you're really aligning with your calling journey. When you're able to make that decision and lean into to the risk and, and, and the, the thing that's not safe because it's pulling you and you know that if you do not do it, you'll have missed that and that will be something you will regret in the future having not pursued because it's burning in you so deeply. And they're the types of things I talk about in the book, you know? Um, go ahead. Yeah. I liked it. in, in chapter one, you talked about, um, there were two things you talked about that kind of, to me, fed into each other. You talk about, um, thinking about it's kind of what you just touched on just now thinking about legacy, like seeing your life as a story. And like, you yeah. know, if, if you don't pursue this thing, then you don't, then your story's going to be boring. And you also say something I really liked and that I've tried to impress on other people, the bit about having an iterative plan, like it's better to have mm -hmm. a plan than no plan at all and just be ready to change it. It's like if you're thinking about your legacy in that way, it's kind of like you're writing a plan by default by doing that, because, uh, you know, if you're writing a story, then you're you have a tentative plan of what's going to happen. And the the 
actual plan and the details can follow from there. And if you have to change it, then you change it. And I, I know yeah. you've written no novels as well. So it makes sense that you, uh, your, your brain would think of things in, in, in that way. Uh, obviously you're well suited for that. Um, yeah. And ch so ch chapter two, nothing is safe. This one was really good. I wanted to just tell you the, the like paragraph about the Cro-Mags and hearing that for the first time really, really resonated with me. I actually wrote down the language that I really liked. Um, you said you heard when you heard the Cro-Mags, it was like hearing the distilled core of human frailty and uh, hearing from the deep reservoir of pain from which humanity groans for the truth. That was like those are like my favorite sentences in the book, like <laughs> of what I read of it, like because that is people talk about Cro-Mags a lot and they get credit for their role in subculture. And some people like them, some people hate them. Uh, side note, John Joseph did write the forward for the book, which is cool. Yep. But like that really got it like the vulnerability that is actually mm -hmm. at the core of what makes that band so fucking good. Like people are like, Oh, it's a tough guy band, whatever. At least I used to nope. hear people say that when I was younger, it's like, nope. yeah. Yeah. But what's really hard about it is that you can hear that pain. And like that to me is yeah. that it like the demo they did, especially it sounds like that feeling of your backs against the fucking mm -hmm. wall and you mm -hmm. just need to fucking hang on to something like that was, that was super, super powerful. So I, I appreciated that passage as someone who's a big fan of the band. I appreciate you appreciating. I mean, I'm literally getting the chills hearing that read back to me because those words 100% represent exactly how I felt when I first heard the Cro-Mags and how I feel when I listen to them even now as a 49-year-old man, having first heard them when I was like 15. You know, I haven't been listening to Age of Quarrel since then. I mean, yeah, I still like Best Wishes too, don't get me wrong. But like Age of Quarrel is the <laughs> And even watching them, I'll, I'll watch uh, like a video of them playing This Is Hardcore from like whatever, 2017 or something. And just seeing the, the, the boiling angst, it's it's not even anger. It's a groaning. It's like a groaning for truth. It's a groaning for something salient that's beyond the external world, you know. And I remember interviewing yeah. John of years ago back when um, – I used to write for Cord Magazine. It was like over 20 years ago. And, and uh, we were talking about spirituality and just, just talking about, you know, you got to roll with the punches in the material world. And, you know, just this idea, the song seeker of the truth and that whole concept. And it's the idea of trying to reconcile the fact that we are in this world. This world is real. We can find enjoyment. We can find our place in the world. But it's also kind of really not our home, right, from a spiritual lens. And that's what the Cro-Mags really talked about. Like, you have to have this spiritual core. You have to realize that the, everything is temporal. We are going to die. We are dying. You know, um, there is going to be evil and dysfunction in the world. And um, how do you reconcile waking up every day and finding to have that PMA, like John Joseph preaches, when you realize this truth about the world? And there is a way to do it, but it takes a lot of searching. It takes a lot of struggle internally to to come to that and to me that's the value that he brings in his books that he brings in his music even the new album blood clot is fucking amazing you know the new blood cloud album souls the ep uh, on upstate records and it, it's that spirit man because you know anybody who has any sort of self-awareness that thinks beyond just the external world like you recognize that there's a groaning man there's just a groaning like we yeah. are imperfect beings in an imperfect world and we always fucking will be and when you realize that truth, it's something to grapple with. And yeah, I, I like the I like that you're distinguishing it from angst because angst is kind of it's like a luxury to be angsty. Like it's you yeah. get past that and you're straight up desperate. Um, I only I had a just a couple more questions here, and then 
we, we, we could wrap up however, whenever you like. Uh, so I had a question about the thing one, thing two dependency. Um, you, as you mentioned earlier, like the clearest example of this and the sort of what we're all doing, the three of us here and a lot of people I know is, you know, you work a day job and, you, you know, you try to get one that's good, do a good job, et cetera, stuff you talk about. And then you pursue music, other stuff that like you would really like to like make your life. Um, in that example, what are, do you have any like absolute red flag, like thing ones? Like, cause I, from what I've observed, there are day jobs that lend themselves to that. And there's ones that are not, yeah. what are like the worst thing ones you've ever heard of or seen or experienced? I think ones that are uncontainable to the point where they outweigh their benefits. So if you have a job that sucks so much energy from you where you're, it either requires too much overtime or you're bringing the work home with you mentally um, and it doesn't even financially provide for you in abundance past paying your bills to enable your thing too, and then you're too exhausted to even pursue your thing too, that's something to reconsider. If you have a thing one that uh, pays your bills and might even pay a little extra to help you know finance your thing too and – most of the time you still have energy after the thing one to put into the thing two. That's the perfect scenario. And that's what you want to look for. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's good advice. Um, so what, one question that we ask like every guest I, in your book, you sort of get into talk about punk rock and you talk about kind of your journey into entrepreneurship and a, a lot of other fields. It's pretty interesting, but what, where did like, how did you get into punk? I mean, like I said, we always ask people that we like hearing origin stories. So where did, where did that start for you? Uh, it was, it was like, I guess probably, uh, middle school, maybe. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was like, in elementary school. I was like, listening to like Sabbath and ACDC and whatever, like rock stuff. You know what I mean? And once I heard a cassette tape with Murphy's law and black flag and why die and old Philly band, dead milkman and all this old punk stuff, subhumans, it just lost my mind. And then obviously the sex pistols. I was like, this is what's inside me. This other stuff floating around the edges. You know, I still like rock and roll. Always like Sabbath, ACDC, Motorhead, of course, you know. But like when I heard like the Pistols, when I heard Murphy's Law self-titled album, I heard Old Black Flag. That stuff was from a friend who gave it to me, an old skate friend. That just it changed my life. And then shortly thereafter, mm -hmm. I heard Minor Threat and Youth of the Day and became straight edge. It was straight edge to us 27. Since I was 27 and I broke edge, I, I probably had to drink every single day. But, you know, at the time, it was it was those bands, man, that really, there's just something about the the vitality, the rawness, the urgency, uh, just like the, the the aggressiveness of that. It was just like, this is what's inside me. This is the, the life spirit that, that uh, reflects mine. So that's actually a decent segue. I got to ask, um, you got a cigar in your hand right now. You talk about cigars in the book. Is that, was that an acquired taste or is it kind of like some people like cilantro? Some people don't like where, where did that come from? Uh, I've tried them. I'm not a fan. What's what, when did the cigar thing start? It's obviously a uh, interest of yours. Yeah. Yeah. Big interest. I don't know that I can live without them, man. I mean, life without cigars is like dry toast, but yeah, so like it was 2005-ish maybe when I was running the labels full-time at an office in downtown Toledo, Ohio, kind of before I, I had a, a series of troubles with the labels and then kind of moved them to be part-time. But I was doing it full-time for a couple of years, and uh, I had an office, and I had like part-time help, but most everybody else was remote that uh, worked with me or for me, publicist and web designer and all that stuff, and distributor. So I kind of got lonely in my office, even though I could smoke cigars in my office. 
And uh, so I ended up going to Cigar Lounge, uh, Port Royal, Toledo, Ohio, and just became like a daily smoker. It's just the camaraderie, the pleasure of the cigars, whether it's matched with coffee or paired with bourbon or whatever it might be. Uh, it just became such an elixir of life. And it just gave me so much pleasure every day and integrating pleasure with work and everything else. And there's a creative element to it. I mean, the, the cigar bands themselves are like art. The different nuances and notes of cigars is, is like art and learning about those. And the culture itself is just amazing. It's somewhat akin to the punk hardcore culture. Like, you know, you could go to a, like I could go to a show in Philly and not have seen people for like five, 10 years. And it's just like this instant um, connection that's just, uh, that, that doesn't miss a beat. And it's the same way when I go to cigar lounges, it's the BOTL, the Brothers of the Leaf, the SOTL, the Sisters of the Leaf. There's just this instant connection, like, you know. So I, sp I spent a lot of time in that culture and friends with certain cigar personalities who did like blurbs on the book. And and uh, there's some crossover even in the punk world, like Joshua Coburn, who I write about in the book, who uh, him and his wife, Sin, own Distant Cigars. They're like old punk, hardcore people. And, you know, he's also a motivational speaker and a writer. And so there is this blending now where you're kind of seeing more of a punk aesthetic move into that world and more of a working class aesthetic and less of the old white golfers is kind of moved, you know, is kind of being pushed out a little bit. So uh, it's an interesting, you know, subculture. So let's, uh, assuming that I'm going to be pairing it with coffee, what's a good one for me to start with? Ooh, try something with a Cameroon wrapper, maybe, uh, you know, a CAO, Pallone uh, is a good one. Um I like this, this uh, West Tampa tobacco, the attic. Um, I like this. I'm drinking it with black coffee right now. Okay. You know, so, uh, this is where it's at. My friend Ricky Rodriguez, this is his new company. He used to be the master blender uh, for CAO, did the flathead line. He just started this company last year. He's kicking ass. And uh, I write about him in the book and he's a friend and he did a blurb. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember that part. All right. Well, I'm, I'm always in the market for new yeah, things that. Yeah, yeah. I'm always in the market for new things that are going to irritate my girlfriend. So I'll keep that in mind. I'll have to go go get one. Um, so where can people get your book? Uh, what what's what's next? What do you have planned? Uh, you got website? Is there going to be an audio book at some point? Uh, where where should people look next if they're interested in what they're what they've heard on this episode? Yeah, and y'all should be interested. Go check it out. Failure rules: The five rules of failure for entrepreneurs creatives and authentics. It's available anywhere books are consumed online. There is an audio book. Uh, this guy, Jay is saying was an actor on Twin Peaks on Showtime, did the audio version. He's fucking awesome. Great cadence, urgency. He did justice to the words. Uh, there's also musical accents throughout the audio book. I mean, I got some oh, sweet. US bombs, mad ball, kings of nothing for our life's sake. A lot of different things playing throughout the audio book. And, um, you can find me at andrewthorpeking.com. There's no E on the end of Thorpe through there. You can get a free failure rules mini course to get on my email list. Uh, I have merchandise there too. My uh, new company, Soul and Fire Supply Company, which echoes the themes of the book. Um, there's also a soundtrack to the book on Spotify and Apple Music, the Failure Rules soundtrack. Uh, it's got you know great bands on there. Actual songs that I listened to during these hard times, or that buoyed me during these hard times, or or I listened to while I was writing it. You know everything from obviously Cro-Mags to Kings of Nothing, Sheer Terror, Rum Jacks, Coffin Cats, you know Madball, Billy Bio, all kinds of stuff, and. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the book's available anywhere online, all formats. All right. Sweet. Yeah. We'll, we'll make sure to link to all of that. Uh, like I said, I, I enjoyed the book. I, I'm going to continue reading it and maybe get into some more detail on it, but I, I thought it was helpful and a lot of it resonated with me. So I'm really stoked that we got in touch with you and that you could come on. I, I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Hey, thanks for having me. And you had appreciate great questions. It. I really appreciate it, man. Uh, you really kind of did your homework and um, your questions were, uh, were phenomenal. 
All right, that's awesome. Yeah, we 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 will be in touch, and we'll be in touch with uh, all our listeners as well. You can find us at kingsofpunk.com, Kings of Punk Pod on Twitter, Cop Pod Official on Instagram. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think. Let us know other guests you'd like in the future, topics. We've got a few different things planned that people have reached yeah. out about. No, we're not on here. Okay. I there's other videos like that that uh, Rochester is on. I'm re- I'm recording just because fuck it. Um, that's funny. You should play that one. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're looking up Rochester stuff on YouTube while we're recording. Yeah, it's really sick. We was I was surprised Smoked to see we're not out. featured in a ten worst ghettos in America video. I guess we probably aren't top ten. I mean that video had like what. Kensington was on there. Camden, That's, New Jersey. Yeah, we're not going to be shittier. No like part Baltimore, of, yeah, Detroit. There's no way the worst parts Quite of Rochester the, are shittier uh, than the worst parts of there. Change in tone from the interview we just did with uh, Andrew. Yeah, but people will probably hear this first. No, it's going to be second. That's a way better idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is the rest of the episode. Yes, yeah. Oh, Here we are. Intro. Okay. Sorry to show you folks how the sausage is made, but yeah. yes. Uh, shout out to Andrew Thorpe King for coming on. That was actually really cool. Yeah. And uh, yeah, hope to stay in touch with him because guy's got a lot of uh, a lot of wisdom and a lot of stories to offer, and he's doing something pretty unique. Um, yeah. So we're we're bullshitting around on YouTube. We there's a rap video from Rochester from th- 13 years ago. Yeah, 2010. That I've just stumbled on and fallen in love with. It's. The song Game Over by PG. We should probably just put it at the end of the episode. Oh, of uh, course. There's a great bar where he says, uh, he's like, it's been so long, goddamn, I missed it. Beretta to your mouth, I'm going to watch you kiss it. December 25th, I'm going to cancel Christmas. And, like, that shit's crazy. Damn. And opening your song with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, nothing but a Crip Tang is, like, he has a T-shirt Dude. on. It's just block letters says, we don't believe you. And I don't know what that means, but it's fucking I hard. Would, PG is his name. Yeah, yeah. Um, that means pretty Grinch. Pretty Grinch, <laughs> or pimp ass Grinch. Cancel Christmas. <laughs> he's canceling Christmas. Grinch. He's the fucking Grinch. Well, as a man of Laotian descent, I assume he he celebrates Buddhist Christmas instead. He seems like a practicing Buddhist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's why he's canceling it. He's like, y'all should be doing this. You, you got to get in on this Buddhist Christmas. Let go of material attachments. Um. No, he did a song like two years ago that I saw. It was really? not as good, but he's he's still alive. It seems like is he still doing? Does it sound like Rochester and that like no the new stuff no, did no. it does not sound no. like Rochester. Unfortunately, not. AKA and to those of you who are listening and don't know the Rochester sound, uh, just go listen to like a Dipset instrumental from like <laughs> fifteen to twenty yeah, years uh, ago uh, and you got in, the idea. Up until and, about up until I would estimate five minutes ago. <laughs> Every rapper in Rochester, every rapper in Rochester just wanted to sound like a Hellrell freestyle. And it was like that for, you know, I don't follow the rap scene here very closely, but I follow it close enough to tell you, like, they were doing that. I mean, that one video, it was from like 20, it got uploaded 13 years ago. 
And that shit would have been dated then. But like yeah. people <laughs> yeah, dude. people here kept trying to sound like that until again extremely recently. When we heard the first time we heard um RXK nephew, who I don't know how long he hasn't been in Rochester, but he was here and lived here long enough to where it was like, Wow, someone from Rochester doesn't rap like that. And that was like two years ago. That's why he had to get out of town because all the other rappers they're like, are like, they're like, you can't do this here, man. Dude. You don't sound enough like hell. We, we don't do that here, RX nephew. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's crazy. This place is, uh, it's way, way behind with a lot of things. One of the strangest places I've ever lived in my entire life in, honestly. Yeah. I will say. <laughs> <laughs> there. Like, there are things, we've talked about this in person, I don't know if we ever talked about it in the podcast, but there are a lot of things that we, that, like, seem to flourish here that normally wouldn't flourish in other cities and places around here. Like, if we talked about it, we don't, we, Rochester really didn't have, we kind of did have the, um, quote-unquote, mysterious guy hardcore bands, but in, like, because we had, uh, there was Salk, school, school shootings, shootings. and but then there were- was... I guess you could say, um, uh, what's the Syracuse band? Um, Hunted Down. Hunted Down to a degree, you know. They would fit in with all those bands, I think, for sure. They would, but Syracuse is, I mean, for one thing, Syracuse, it seems to process, like, punk trends differently than we do. You Uh could probably also throw that Night Terrors band in with that, too. You know what? Yeah, you probably could. But after that, we didn't have the bounce. I'm surprised we haven't had the bouncy hoax kind of, like, thing gel thing no gag whatever the fuck whatever the band no. the eighth iteration of that like at all well because that got big right around the time that anyone who was doing punk here stopped giving a fuck about punk but and also it's been it, every you know midterm cycle it, it revives itself again in some part of the country it seems it does yeah but here it's like i don't know it's a small city and a lot of those people have even school shootings salt those are great bands but those people were you know, they were older. They had responsibilities. They weren't going to go on tour and, like, make school shootings a flagship band for Rochester, really. Yeah, this is a real this is a real bubble city, if I had the... It's bizarre. You're right. It is it is a, the strangest place I've ever lived before my entire life. Because, I mean, it's not like that, really, and it doesn't seem like it's like that at all in, like, Buffalo or Syracuse. Syracuse no. especially. Syracuse, for my whole life, it's been... Well, no. Because there was a huge gap of time where there wasn't shit in Syracuse, as far as I could tell, other than Hunted Down, who were totally doing their own thing. Or but, uh, I remember Herpes, too. From they're from Utica, back. though. Utica. Oh, I thought... Oh, shit, okay. But, but kind of, <laughs> you could count... You could include them, but either way, those guys were just totally in isolation. Yeah. Doing definitely. their own thing. But, like, when I started going to shows, the, like, straight-edge, hardcore thing was still pretty big in Syracuse. And we had, like, How We Are from Rochester. That was, like, a melodic hardcore band, which was big at the that time. That was, like, in the late 2000s. It's, like, up to 05, like 06, 2010. Because, yeah. like, yeah, yeah I, would, I was thinking about because I was listening to Black Assess the other day. Um, and, like, around that time, it feels like Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, pretty even playing field. Right. I think all those cities had, had at least one pretty sick band. So, you know, there's Black SS in Syracuse. We had, like, How We Are. We had, um, like, I Object or, like, Destructs or something like that. Or, you know, uh, 17th Class. Was that two? Around that. That was 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 before then. A little bit before. That was, like, early, early 2000s. Um, 
we had you know a, a good hand, a solid handful of like sick bands. Um, Buffalo, I think, same thing. Um, Buffalo's always had like I think really good bands for the most part. Like it, they might not have like at times the best general scene, but some of my favorite bands, honestly, the last like thirty years have come from Buffalo. But yeah, after that, seemed to be kind of a weird. Dip both for Rochester and Syracuse. Syracuse probably it. more dramatically. Like our thing here is yeah. we had good bands for a while, but they didn't like do maybe everything they could have. And our scene was to its credit in terms of me having a good time, pretty dysfunctional. But we had a. I think Rochester maybe it has an advantage of for whatever reason having a concentration of extremely talented, creative people in subculture and in like the underground broadly and specifically in punk. But they don't that doesn't always coalesce into like, oh, they made a great punk band. It like people tend to split off and do other things. And I guess there's nothing wrong with that. Syracuse seems to have like the most like promising scene right now in terms of having a, a concentration of young people who give a fuck about stuff. I'd oh, say yeah. Rochester is definitely in third place. And there we go. For sure. At this point. Yeah. I mean, Buffalo, I haven't been to a show in Buffalo in a while, so I guess it's hard to say, but. They might have like the best bands right now. I mean, fucking Science Man is stupid 100%. good. Violent Way is stupid good, even though they don't play there. Exhibition is stupid good, even though they largely don't play there. Big Dog is a new one that's good. Well, they that, they're from Niagara Falls too, aren't they? He, he's from Niagara he's from Falls. Niagara. Yeah. Big oh, Dog okay. himself is. I don't know about the rest of them. And yeah, and Biff always has good projects. But yeah, I would I would say Syracuse. So I mean, for the uh, I guess. I did go see. I did go to a show recently. Oh uh, shit! Yeah, we played a show, but I also went to a show. I went to go see Kidnapped, Fedash, Adrian, and Last Wishes um, this past Tuesday. That so now it, uh, it's the twenty first or something like that. Whatever. But uh, that was really sick. It was cool to go to. That was the second time in the last year I've been to a show in Syracuse at that venue, the Silver Street Center, and. It was it's awesome. Like the the energy there in Syracuse that they have is like it's definitely a bit different than Rochester. The kids go off, you know, people were moshing. Rochester's never been like that. No. People used to go off here for sure, like but not in that way. I will say I've seen I saw at our show we played there was a circle pit at one point and then there was a little bit of a circle pit yeah, in Syracuse dude. on the show I went to. More of that, please, please love a good circle pit. Yeah, that's that's really easy for. It's a fucking. It's an easy. You don't have to fun, push anybody. You don't have to push anyone. Everyone's kind of involved. You can do your own twist on it. I remember you talking about that, like how you were uh, taken a bit aback by the circle pit antics of at, Rochester. At my, yeah, my first show because it, it during that era, like I want to say oh six oh seven like. The people who were a little older than me, like that was the go-to mosh move was the circle pit. And they had it so, and this is through the lens of me remembering eighth grade, but the first circle pit I ever saw was the most regimented one I've ever seen. It was like, you couldn't get in there. It was like a force of nature. And that shit is cool. It feel like it's like associated with metal, kind of, which everybody yeah, liked. Cross trash. People loved crossover in Rochester back then, so I don't know. Maybe that'll be a bug here again, I, you know, because the metal scene here, we went to a big metal show the other day. Like, I don't what know. What show was that? The, the, it was the, 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 the one that HR played. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was that was really sick. So if we could get some metal people to, 
I guess, crossover, you could say. Maybe we could have, like, a good crossover band here. I could see that happening. If I had more time, I would start one. I've never done that, and I've kind of always wanted to. But I remember uh, my favorite local crossover band, Killed With Cash. Oh, yeah. yeah. Remember that band? Yeah, that band was good, and I don't know what the fuck. I kind of knew some of those kids. They were from Pittsburgh, but they just disappeared. They played a couple shows and disappeared. Last time I saw them, some of them were there when Agnostic Front played at Water Street. We saw them at a punk's picnic, and I remember doing uh, Irish car bombs. Yep. Oh, that's yep. right. That's uh, you know what, guys? That's like if you ever see us at a, at a show or something like that, give us a uh, round of Irish car bombs. Let's just yeah. start, let's just start making that. A Shout thing. out to Jake from Illiterates for doing that when he saw me and Tim <laughs> in Cleveland because that was awesome. Oh, dude, I'm so bummed that wasn't there. I don't like how they made like in Cleveland they didn't let us drop the shot glass into the beer. No, it was it. Not that proper. was kind of oh, dumb. Really? Yeah, they were like, oh, you got to pour it into the cup. Otherwise, you'll break it. Yeah, it's like, well, maybe you shouldn't offer Irish car bombs then. <laughs> but yeah, and I, another funny thing about Kill with Cash, I do remember the uh, guitar player. Uh, he was wearing some funny like tie dye Pink Floyd shirt, it and he was like a Pittsburgh kid, all right. <laughs> he also had some like it was some sort of like it was like a basketball team fitted hat or something like that. Yeah, they went That's, to. They, yeah. I think they went to uh, Darby. Probably knows them. I think swear they went to Sutherland. I don't remember if they went there or Menden. But, yeah, I don't know. Fucking the crossover thing's big right now. The crossover. A lot of people aren't doing it very well. But In Rochester, though, the crossover is over. <laughs> it's all over, folks. Game over. Book closed. This the last chapter. It's a sp- the spoonful, uh, hey, spoonful oh, of Viking like reference. Yeah. Is it really? Is it really? It's, really? it's oh. on the, the one of their tapes, I think. <laughs> Well, I mean, it would be nice. Like, I think the thing with Rochester that uh, we don't have is that we have like really like younger people starting bands. Like, we have people starting bands, but it's like people our age and shit, and us. And then it's also like a um, DIY like rodeo rock band. Yeah. So, it's it's one of those things where I I want more younger like Vicious Intent, good example. Younger band, I they're like on a metal band though, and I kind of wish they were more crossover. I wish they had like shorter songs and were more punk. Yeah, yeah, they that should try ripping that punk rock. Yeah, rip that punk it's rock, punk rock baby. baby. It's metal punk baby. It's metal punk baby. Yeah, how about that? Like they gotta, they gotta charge it up a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, this is the birthplace of the metal punk death squad, of which I that's am true. a patched in member. So that's yeah, let's bring it back, baby. 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 No, we need a venue here. That was, things were promised. I mean, it's pretty simple. Things were really promising when Chaos Compound was around, and they're less promising now because what the fuck are we going to do? Although Syracuse, Syracuse is dealing with that despite the venue situation there sounds even worse because they don't even really have, like, a cool bar. They have that rack center, which is awesome because I can play ping pong there, and they have the Funkin' Waffles place, which I've never been to, and uh, it sounds... It sounds like not the coolest place I've ever heard well, of. Maybe they should you just keep before. having shows at that uh, that uh, skate park. I that think they're cool. gonna. Try. I think that's maybe a. Plan. Yeah, they should I'm do that. That's spoil anything. That, but, that was cool. Um, no, it's it's tough because and even with the any any venue, anyone that books shows will know this. Uh, it is uh, it is one bad event from something getting shut down and not being allowed. I'm sure it's something along those lines. They're allowed to do it. Um, that's why, you know, people can be very sometimes pretty strict about it. Um, about like moshing and stuff like that, which 
like I said, people in Syracuse go off, but they're respectful and they're fun. And like, honestly, if you see moshing, you should be, you should be smiling and like laughing because it, it's fucking fun. I don't know. Like seeing people, I was talking, I was like looking at people with Connor and just being like, the dude's doing the triple combo right there. <laughs> He's like jumping like to a foot in the air and like doing like a kicking like, around like, like a 720 air kick. He's doing like Street Fighter fucking moves and like during like mosh metal. It's awesome. No pushing to be seen. Not a single push allowed. Not a push or show. Really, when people went off in Rochester back then, I don't really remember how people danced. I remember how like I did, and I mostly just remember people like destroying things, trying to get kicked out of shows. Yeah, uh, yep. Sniffing glue, spray painting swastikas everywhere. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, definitely rubber cement in the paper bag. Taking a shit in front of the bug jar during a show. Pretty good oh, mosh I move. remember people yeah. ripping the, like, all the little uh, accessories off the ceiling at the bug jar. <laughs> yes, for, uh, yes. Well, because they have quirky stuff uh, nailed to the ceiling there, and you can swing from it. People were hanging off it and trying to pull shit down. Yeah, yeah, good sick moves that people have in Rochester. So sick moves like destroying the business. <laughs> <laughs> this one's called shutting the business down. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this I'm, one's called break through the window. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's a kick. That's like a kickback. This is what's called swastika. <laughs> <laughs> this one's called graffiti swastika in the alleyway. <laughs> Some very potent mosh moves. <laughs> people went crazy though, but I was fucking. Oh up yeah, man. people danced. Uh, I just don't remember how. Kickback has the song "Ruining the Show." That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, this one's called "Taking a Piss in the Elevator." <laughs> I do have. I do have a very sick band name that I can't say that I really would want to make like a Can we mosh just, friendly like hardcore band. Could we boop it out? Yeah, I believe it's called. Okay. Which that would be a sick band. Yeah, it sounds Japanese almost. It, well, that does. But yeah, I got a I got a th- thing in the mail and was like, <laughs> speed to ticket. Wait a minute! What? Oh, is this for the thing in in Ohio? No, this is a different ticket. Another for from what? Like a parking ticket? Yeah, they're chill, Paul Walker. Right, right. Yeah, Paul Walker. Yeah, dude, he they're died gonna... in a parking accident. <laughs> yeah, he parked and then the tree like, fell over onto what's him. What's that movie about? Right, Fast and Furious about parallel parking and it's like just... parking tickets and not paying them. You, you, they could parallel park really quickly, and they got furious about when people. They... Hitting their their rear view, the windows on the side of the car. Or they'd be furious when they found the boot on their car tire. I would be, too. That's why it's a relatable film, beloved by millions. Like millions of Paul Walker fans around the globe. (laughs) I mean, he's the only reason people watch that movie, right? Um, He was... Is him and Vin. They had good chemistry. And, like, honestly, after... I mean, I like Jason Statham in them. Jason Statham. I've never watched those. We should watch them. I'll watch them. I've I'll actually watch never watched one either. They're pretty awesome. I mean, I just remember... Here's here's the thing. First two are very much car movies. Third one, also a car movie, but kind of like a weird offshoot. And, but uh, then in three, Japan, three, right? Three Fast, Three... Which, yeah, three, which three one Tokyo. is Tokyo Drift? That's is the that, third that's one. Three. I remember the song. 
With uh, who was it? Like Bow Wow, right? The one he's singing, yeah. Um, that has the little Bow Wow man in it, and uh, so, but that one was gonna be like an offshoot, but Vin Diesel appears at the end of it because he was like, "I'm back in," because Vin Diesel at the time was like, "I don't do sequels," so that's why he's not in two, uh, but Paul Walker is. So that's why there's only one triple X movie. And only one. There's two triple X movies. Well, what the hell is he talking about then? He's a goddamn well, he did the liar. Like twenty years later. Oh well, the, still the the fact stands that he made it. He's like, and there I is, don't do sequels. There By the way, here's the sequel. Two critic movies. He did Pitch Pitch Black, or yeah, it's Pitch Black, and then oh. Chronicles of Riddick, and then the Pacifier. He did two of those. Yeah, two Pacifiers. What about a baby? Yeah, where he's like some. He's like a babysitter. I remember seeing oh. that in theaters. Damn, and guys, then, then there's Wild Hogs too. You guys saw more movies than me, dude. Uh, I watched three movies this weekend. Damn son, I can't. But to be fair, it was two movies that I had seen. So I watched um, Seven, and then I watched The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, and then we watched um, Fight Club. Fuck which Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is that that's a, Nick the Nick Cage movie with Pedro Pascal. Where, like, Nick Cage is playing like himself. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's really. I Does thought your it was brother really have fun. a copy of it on DVD yet? Huh? Oh, probably. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I thought it was a good. I thought it was a good movie. I thought it was fun. Have um, you watched Seven before? I have watched Seven many times. I've only seen it once, but that, that seven movie is, is fucking good. One of my definitely one of my top top twenty movies. I haven't yeah. watched a movie probably in like a month. Really? And it was Chopper. Chopper. Yeah, What's Brandon Chopper Reed. What's Chopper? It's about this like um, Australian criminal guy who's like in prison and he gets like st- spoiler alert he gets like stabbed up and shit and then he like gets out and he's like all oh, like a he's like a real gangster type yeah. fellow you know that sounds good real bogan the last you know, last one very I, bogan last one I watched was the the Departed I think and I was like I said I was skeptical because it's three fucking hours long but I could not take my eyes off it yo we should all watch on the bogan tip. The Cosmic Psychos documentary has come highly recommended to me, and I bet it is really good. And I, I wanted to talk it, about that it. band anyway. And we, Tim and I watched part of it where it's like Eddie Vedder and King Buzzo talking about going on tour with them and, and how they were drunk. Like a guy from Mod Honey. Yeah, too, yeah. I think. That's awesome. But yeah, I watched, uh, I will say Fight Club. Yeah, what do so, you think of Fight Club? To go, I guess, go back real quick. What was I talking about? Fast and Furious. So real quick. Um, four is when Fast and Furious gets good, and then five is the is like five, six, five and six are the best Fast and Furious. Seven's pretty good too. Um, eight you don't need to see. Nine who I haven't seen yet, but five and six like after four is when they become superhero movies. Okay, and they become invulnerable to physics, reality. They can't lose fights. Um, right, they can fall is, off an airplane and live. Yeah, five five is the best one because it has uh, the vault scene, but. Interesting that a series would get like you know like really good like you know fucking five the other movies into their they're fine but it's just like it doesn't pick up until it becomes bizarre. But Fight Club had you first off had you watched it before? I've watched Fight Club before. Okay. I have definitely watched Fight Club before, and I watched it when I was y- definitely as a kid, um, a kid, young young teen. When you got and, the, all the wrong messages from it. <laughs> yep, I remember reading a little bit of it, and. 
I did have, if you remember, maybe you don't remember, um, I had a huge, enormous poster, Fight Club poster. That's cool. But it was like the size of like a wall, straight up. That's really like, cool. It's ridiculous. I don't think I ever put it up because it was so big. <laughs> Where'd you get that from? Like Hot Topic or something. <laughs> Real, wow, they sold the posters Radio's that FYE, big. I don't know. Probably FYE. Remember. Media play. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was huge. Maybe that size of a wall, but too fucking big. So I thought it was... I honestly think Fight Club gets a little too much flack. Definitely. Uh, it's a good fucking movie. I don't I don't know. Like, like with anything, yes, the people that are fans of it could be annoying. But, like, who who is, like, a Fight Club guy that you know anymore? Well, Andrew Tate, for one. I guess. <laughs> I guess. I haven't heard him talk I, about it, but, like... I feel like that's kind of the platonic ideal of, like, someone who saw that movie and took the wrong message from it. But, like, I haven't met a guy like that in years. And also, you could say that about, like, any number of movies. I did want to say, ask our guest what he thought of those two movies. Um, because Fight Club and Fast Specifically and the Fight Club because uh, Fight Club, about for the, I mean, I guess those, that, like, uh, Edward Norton's character, what's his name? It's... uh. Uh, Jack? No, it's that's. Do we Edward even know Nord- his name? Yeah, we, we don't know his name. It's not Tyler Durden because Tyler Durden is um, Brad Pitt. Yeah, I don't remember. But the Edward Norton's character, name. like he creates Tyler Durden because he cannot, like, change who he is. Yeah, his mind ostensibly creates him. So, like, I thought that was interesting what we were talking about and like failure and like changing yourself because like it's an interesting thing to look at where like someone is like someone's brain basically makes them like creates a split personality yeah. because of that which also was brought on by his insomnia yeah you should i'm so, sorry you should flag me down it would be a good question for him because it is i think in andrew's book it's like i guess the idea would be um to avoid having that sort of discontentment manifests itself as a delusion like that. Yeah. You have to confront the fact that you hate your fucking life and that's hard to fucking hard to do. You don't want to do that. It's easier to invent a Tyler Durden in your head and think that you're that guy or wait for an imaginary Tyler Durden to ask you to, you know, blow shit up with soap or whatever. But most people who watch the movie, as far as I can tell many people that, and I, I, I did meet guys like this. The takeaway was that Tyler Durden is cool. First and foremost, and here's the thing: he is fucking cool. I'm sorry, but Brad right. Pitt in that movie is fucking cool. Yeah, like, I've you never want seen it. to be Tyler Durden. Like, if I wanted to be someone, yeah, I would. I don't, I don't want to be Tyler Hammer. I want to be Tyler Durden, who is like a super charismatic, doesn't give a fuck about anything, does whatever the fuck he wants. Dude, if you legally you know, change your name, I mean, that's all gonna happen. You're right, actually. Just change your name to Durden, and you're good. I turn into a pile of dust. As <laughs> well, I, uh, you just disappear. You go just... and get my name changed. Yeah. I've never seen Got some things. It's, it's a good one. It's good worth movie. watching. But they, there is the clip of Patrice O'Neill talking about it is really good. And I think it's telling. Is that where he's like, white people love that shit? Well, he, he like that. says something effective. This didn't do nothing for me, but... I do feel like I just saw the epitome of something that's white. I feel like I saw some shit that I wasn't supposed to see. And the point he makes that I think is like he got the Fight Club take right before a lot of people did. 
is he's like, this is like the Scarface of white people. Implying oh, yeah. that because, you know, other people will see Scarface and their takeaway will be, yeah, dude, Tony's cool. I want to be like Tony. And again, Tony, like, kind of is fucking cool. Like, you watch a movie, Tony's like, he's giving good speeches. He's pretty cool. But, like, you don't really want to be like Tony because uh, he doesn't seem very happy. And That's a little too cool ended. for me. He also but, but dies the, in the end. Yes. So. And he, not in a nice way and not in, in peace. But the... the but, and it's telling that uh, that clip of Patrice, it was posted on YouTube from Chuck Palahniuk's, like, he posted on his YouTube channel. Really? <laughs> which means I think that he approves. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you know, all the toxic masculinity and all the... I mean, I was going to say, that's stuff. why all the flack for it, right? Like, toxic white male thing. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, but that's like the opposite, in my opinion, the maybe not the polar opposite, but close to the polar opposite of, like, what... The message of it is if you're not a moron like the message of it is that like anyone like Andrew Tate that's actually a perfect example anyone who's t- selling you on a Tyler Durden style or Tony Montana style aspirational figure to aspire to or to try to be they are selling you a delusion and a really and not only that a delusion that will be destructive to you and to others um, but uh, but it is cool so you know take it for what it but- is. I guess with the uh, the Fight Club thing, like with the Project Mayhem thing, they a big thing with Project Mayhem is they have no names. So like, yeah. we have no names. Versus Andrew Tate is all about Andrew Tate, right? Yes. Having all the about name, the self, the brand. Yes, and He's, yeah. No one's takeaway from that is that like I should like fucking castrate my identity completely um, and divorce myself from like my general like reality oh you like, couldn't you couldn't sell that to people you really can't sell that to americans people. no you can't sell it to them which is why i mean it's an interesting movie because you know it all starts with people just fighting and beating the shit out of each other because i mean at the end of the day it's like a freeing thing yeah people be fucking cool. love boxing that's why yeah. they love mma and ufc you know because that's why they like tlc marathons yeah exactly you know Sitting through a whole 12 hours of my 600-pound yeah. life. I mean, that's tough, dude. That's like, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like getting your ass kicked. It's like hitting your fucking shit pushed in I'm, right there. I'm, I feel like I got beat up just thinking about it. <laughs> I got to listen to that PG song again and recharge. Game over. Ready for round two. Game over, book close. That's the last chapter. It's him talking about his gang, the Crips, being... Highly successful in the city of Rochester. Making a lot of money on illicit alcohol and drug sales, probably. <laughs> Here in the city of Rochester, yeah. <laughs> Good for a them, city though. where there's a whole lot of money to, to get after, so. <laughs> well, what else? Anything else you want to? I think we're good. This is like a half hour and we had an intro. Um, we're more than, more than finished. Yeah, off, off mic, we'll talk about maybe next episodes. We've got some recommendations. i got some ideas, but... Oh, we know we know what we're gonna do next episode. I'll talk to you after. We do okay. Um, yeah, no, thanks again to uh, Andrew Thorpe King for coming on. That was really cool. Uh, maybe we'll have him on again someday. We'll see what he wants to do. But definitely check out his stuff. Uh, definitely an interesting character with a lot of uh, thoughts to offer that are worth considering. And uh, I'm stoked he came on. And uh, yeah, you can check us out on kingsofpunk.com and all the other usual avenues. And uh, Thanks again to our sponsors and for everybody listening. We uh, love hearing from you. So let us know what you think. Appreciate it, yo. Preach. What can I say if it's so
Change? Change for what? I mean, what more could I say, man? Side is old for you niggas. Get it cracked. Chitty, chitty, bang, bang. Nothing but a grip thing. Go and let the fifth bang. Then let the sixth ring. C's up, G's up. It's 450 gang. Green light, speed up. Catch me if you can. I'ma drink his milk and knock the food out of his hand. I'ma blame the two till it emptier a jam. Holding 244s like Yosemite Sam. Blue flag on my face in a raggedy van. See, I don't give a fuck and I never gave a damn. Trust no bitch and I fear no man. So I'll fuck your chick and I'll serve him grams. The nerve of this man trying to fuck with a soldier. Good weight push to turn the rock to a boulder. It's a cold world, but my niggas make it colder. Strong on my niggas till we break in the shoulder. It's over for you niggas, man. It's over. Game over, book close. It's the last chapter. The takeover, you know, cause no one's after. It's a done deal, man. The city is ours. Signed and sealed. Game over, book close. It's the last chapter. The takeover, you know, cause no one's after. It's a done deal, man. The city is ours. Signed and sealed. Sincerely yours. Sincerely yours. P.I.G. For everyone that you caught, nigga. P drop three. And we don't believe you got it cheaper than we. One on one, you can't rewrite me. I live by the gun, so it's one on three. One nigga, three bullets equals history. Got the youngest to ride, I tell them, get like me. Money over bitches, it's death before this honor.